Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. I'm not sure that I agree with you 100% on your police work there, Lil. In the footage from Raymond Tinzing's body-worn camera, things move slowly at first. You see the pale skin of the officer's hands on the steering wheel as he maneuvers his vehicle and pulls over the car that, contrary to Ohio motor vehicle laws, has no front license plate. Soon you see the view from the officer's perspective as he stands next to the driver's side of the Honda Accord he's pulled over, standing just a bit behind the rear edge of the driver's open window. You hear Raymond Tinzing identify himself as an officer with the University of Cincinnati Police Department. You see a lot of red, but not blood, at least not at first. There's a lot of red because Samuel DeBose, the black man driving the vehicle pulled over, is wearing a red hat and red clothing. DeBose's seatbelt remains on. Repeatedly, Tinzing asks DeBose for his driver's license. DeBose says he has a license, but after several requests, says that he doesn't think he has it on him. After asking if DeBose's license is suspended and DeBose denying that it is, Tenzing directs him to take his seatbelt off. Then things happen very quickly. You see Tenzing's left hand grasp the exterior door handle and begin to open it by just a hair. You see DeBose's left hand grasp the door at the bottom of the open window and pull it shut again. Then, in rapid succession, DeBose's right hand moves in the direction of the ignition on the side of the steering wheel. The point of view shifts as Tenzing slides forward along the side of the vehicle, shouting stop, twice, and reaching into the vehicle with his left hand. And in the next instant, Tenzing's black service weapon, held in his right hand, enters the frame from the right, as you can hear the pop of a single round fired. DeBose's vehicle then revs up and pulls away. Tenzing falls away from it, and then he and two other officers, one visible to Tenzing's camera, give chase on foot, and they soon catch up to the vehicle, which has crossed the street and come to rest at a corner after striking a guardrail and a telephone pole. It's clear from the footage that DeBose has suffered a serious wound to the head and is slumped to the side, unconscious. DeBose is later pronounced dead. In the ensuing minutes, and eventually in his statement, Tenzing claims that his left hand was caught in the car, that he was being dragged, and that he feared he'd be run over, suggesting that that was why he fired. But the internal administrative review that the University of Cincinnati commissioned by Kroll Associates Incorporated concludes otherwise. In its words... The evidence Kroll reviewed and analyzed does not lend support to these statements. Additionally, contrary to Tenzing's statements, at no point in the body camera video footage does it appear that Tenzing's arm is lodged or caught in the steering wheel of the Accord or other aspect of the car's interior. As for the dragging, the report continues, quote, Although it is difficult to determine with certainty whether or not the Accord had moved, and if so, by how much, any car movement before the moment Tenzing fired his weapon appears to have been minimal, end quote. 
Consistent with that conclusion, Kroll's analysis of specific frames from the video shows that, as Tenzing began to reach into the vehicle, a parked car can be seen in a driveway on the opposite side of DeBose's vehicle. That parked car provides a useful point of reference for assessing any movement of DeBose's vehicle. Critically, at the moment when Tenzing's weapon is visibly pointed at DeBose's head, the parked car remains visible in the distance. Even after the round has been fired, the parked car's position in the frame has barely changed, suggesting DeBose's vehicle has barely moved, if at all. It's only as Tenzing is beginning to disengage from the vehicle that there is a clear indication that DeBose's vehicle has moved relative to the parked car, but it's still in the frame. Although Kroll's report acknowledged that DeBose's actions were unhelpful, their task was to review Tenzing's conduct. They concluded that, even though the decision to stop DeBose was lawful and justified, and even though Tenzing's initial conduct in the stop was appropriate, in their words, Officer Tenzing thereafter made critical errors in judgment and exercised poor police tactics that created a hazard of serious bodily injury or death and heightened the risks of a dangerous escalation, end quote. As a result of these events, Tenzing was fired from the UCPD and also tried, twice, for murder and voluntary manslaughter. More on that later. The events from that day in July of 2015 also changed the life and career of another UC employee, one who had nothing to do with those events at all. At the time of the shooting, Robin Engel was a college professor and an accomplished researcher. Engel was a professor of criminal justice at the University of Cincinnati. Her work as a researcher included service as director of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, University of Cincinnati's Center for Police Research and Policy. She had two decades of experience studying police decision-making. She had studied police departments, but she hadn't been responsible for overseeing one. That soon changed. After DeBose's death, the UC committed itself to reforming its university police department, and Engel was chosen to lead the effort, as the new vice president for safety and reform. After the department enacted a long list of reforms during her time as vice president, she left work as a senior administrator and refocused on research. In the wake of the recent killing of George Floyd, Engel took some time to talk with me. We talked about policing, about criminal justice research, and about potentially helpful reforms that can promote greater community trust in police and, consistent with her research focus, better decision-making by police. I now share that conversation in this episode, which is titled, Moment of Truth. I grew up in a home where um, my father had a drinking problem. Uh, he was an alcoholic um, and sometimes abusive. And sometimes the police would be called to my home. And one day they were called to my home and my father was arrested. And he came back a couple of days later. And after that, he didn't drink anymore and he wasn't abusive anymore. And I, you know, processing that as a child, a nine, 10, 11 year old, um, trying to understand what happened and why it happened. Uh, it was interesting to me because in graduate school, that's when I started reading about mandatory domestic violence uh, arrest policies uh, and how police can impact crime and criminal activity and the help that they can provide uh, to victims and what that would mean and how that actually changed my life. Um, if that officer had decided, like the many officers before him, uh, not to do anything when there was a call for service, uh, my life might be dramatically different. Uh, but instead, he decided at that point that there was a need for an arrest and for intervention. So my interest in that decision-making, the, the discretion that an officer uses to intervene on behalf of the government in someone's life, to take their liberty, uh, that decision, 
What policies guide that? What training guides that? How do officers make those decisions and why? And what impact does it have? I've always been interested in that specifically. Um, and so the cases that I uh, am most interested in, of course, are the ones that, uh, that I see and hear and I think about the individuals, the police officer, the suspects, the children um, that are in and around these situations and what those decisions uh, mean and how they impact so many lives, not just the lives of those two individuals in the encounter, but all the lives around them. So I mentioned uh, my own interest in uh, the case of George Floyd. Uh, as I had indicated to you uh, in uh, uh, preparation for this conversation, I am not going to ask you to offer an evaluation of the officer's conduct in that case uh, because it doesn't feel fair to put you in a position to be a fact finder when you're not a fact finder in that case, to be judge and jury when you're not judge and jury. But uh, assuming that you have, well, have you watched any of that video? Uh, I did watch the video. And I began to watch the video right after I had just completed a webinar uh, on officers' uh, fatal shootings. <laughs> Interestingly enough, I had just finished that. That was something we had we had put together. There was a special edition uh, that was put together for the annals, and we were doing uh, a webinar on on those on that very topic. And as soon as I came out of my office, it was all over the news, and I I watched the video, and I felt pain. I felt grief. I felt uh, I felt sick to my stomach, uh, quite honestly. Uh, in part for what I saw and for uh, the ways that I knew that people would react um, and the experiences that they would be going through, but also because I had been uh, I had taken over a police agency after a fatal shooting. I know what that looks like uh, for years to come, rebuilding police community relations uh, and all of those other issues and what it means for the family and what it means for the officer and what it means for the police department and all of those things are uh, painful. And so I, that I felt grief. And the case that you were just referring to that preceded your taking over department, that was the case of uh, Samuel DeBose? Yes. Uh, so I'm at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, I was serving as a, as a professor there, and I also consult with police departments around the country. And uh, in July of 2015, uh, University of Cincinnati uh, Police Division, a UCPD officer was patrolling uh, in the areas off campus, about a mile, half mile, roughly off campus, um, and had engaged in a traffic stop. And that traffic stop uh, ultimately resulted in the fatal shooting of an unarmed black male. And that traffic stop was captured on the body, on the body-worn camera uh, that was department issued uh, for the officer. And Ultimately, um, the officer, uh, Raymond Tenzing, was tried. He was charged with murder. He was tried twice. Uh, both uh, criminal trials resulted in hung juries. And so uh, after, shortly after that shooting, within days, uh, the university administration recognized the need uh, for top-to-bottom review of the police agency and thinking very clearly about the need for police reform. And I was, uh, uh, they created a vice president position. So vice president for safety and reform. And I took over that position and worked for the next three and a half years uh, to build back community trust, to uh, make significant reform uh, within that police department. And uh, we had number of external reviews. We set up a community advisory council, 276 recommendations for the top to bottom review. And 
we uh, had substantial compliance with 275 of those 276 within three years. So we became what I believe is a model, a national model for what police reform uh, can and should look like. When you look back over those 275, and that's quite an impressive batting, uh, batting average, when you look back at the 275, I wonder if you could highlight two or three specific policy changes that you think, if you had to pick two or three, that perhaps because they're most impactful, uh, you would, if you had to choose two or three to, to recommend that other departments consider, what two or three would you mention? Sure. Well, we changed 155 policies. <laughs> we either updated them or put in place uh, policy changes. Um, but the most significant one was the changes to the use of force policy. And we, we went through that use of force policy very carefully, very clearly, and we brought a research lens to it as well. We looked for best practices. We looked for evidence-based uh, research to help us uh, with that. And I believe that that is a very strong uh, use of force policy. It's focused on the sanctity of life. And it also includes in there, embedded in the policy, is the actual training that we also changed uh, for use of force, including de-escalation training and what's called the critical decision-making model. Uh, that really guides officers' decisions uh, in these types of situations and emphasizes at every step a de-escalation mindset. Um, so that's what I would, I would strongly recommend. Uh, police departments around the country, these police executives are already doing that. They're looking over their policies with a fine-tooth comb, and there are clear uh, recommendations that we believe will save lives uh, that they should be implementing. My understanding, uh, as someone who has read about criminal justice, uh, but not as an expert, is that in many departments, the police union leadership often stands in opposition to de-escalation training, in many cases arguing, and I think I've actually seen you in one of your papers refer to this, arguing that because de-escalation often asks officers to try to slow things down, that that uh, slowing down of a reaction could get an officer injured or killed. There may be other uh, um, arguments that uh, union leadership has offered. I wonder if in the case of uh, the University of Cincinnati Police Department, assuming that they, they have a union or they're a part of a union? Yes, they do. Was union leadership at all an obstacle in moving forward with the changes to your use of force policy, including uh, the emphasis on de-escalation? So in my particular situation, we did uh, we we do have uh, multiple police unions. We have um, the the FOP, which is for the patrol officers. We have a sergeant's uh, or supervisors uh, union as well, and we have a separate union for our security officers, which are different than sworn officers or personnel. Uh, and then there's also a union for the civilian dispatchers. So there are multiple unions. We did not find um, any type of resistance uh, from the union for these types of policy changes. Um, of course, you know, some officers would grumble here and there. There were a lot of changes thrown at these officers all at once. But with those changes, we also brought them significant resources. We invested heavily in their training. We invested in their equipment. Uh, we invested even in their physical space. You know, they had uh, an office that was completely run down, the police department. Um, just They had been a neglected unit for a very long time. And so when we want and expect officers uh, to make these significant changes, we have to empower them. Them to do that. And the only way to really truly empower is to bring those resources, the training that they need, the equipment that they need, and to continually reinforce those messages through good supervision and good leadership. So that's the other thing. We changed the leadership um, in that organization. And, uh, and then we, 
worked very hard to support our officers, and I think we were successful in doing that. Um, there's been a lot of conversation about police unions uh, around the country, and I do think that there are places where the unions are very problematic for police reform and change, but I don't think that's the case everywhere. And so again, it's painting things with a broad brush. Policing is very localized. We have 17,000, 18,000 different police agencies, and within those agencies, we have different dynamics. And so um, most certainly, we have to think about how we better engage and work with unions so that they see the common goals um, but also so those officers are supported so that they want to work for those common goals. Going back to de-escalation, my recollection is you have recently, perhaps even this calendar year, published a paper on de-escalation based on that work or on de-escalation research uh, of which you're aware more generally. What is your sense of how well we understand the effectiveness of police uh, de-escalation or de-escalation in related related professions. Mm -hmm. And insofar as we do understand, what does the data suggest is the efficacy? And and I ask this as someone who has intuitively been enthusiastic about de-escalation. It makes sense. But I'm also a researcher, and I know that sometimes things that make sense aren't always as efficacious as we might hope. And so what's the state of our knowledge uh, on de-escalation right now? Well, you know, I came at it the same way you did, um, with sort of a, a keen mind and interest of, you know, does this work? What does the research suggest? Um, but when I, when I became a police executive from a re- as a researcher, uh, I was really disappointed in my research colleagues. Because what I found was, uh, you know, I had to, as a, as a leader of a of a law enforcement agency, I had to make decisions regarding what's the best training uh, in de-escalation so that my officers and citizens have reduced risk of injury and death. And so I thought the research would point me in the right direction. And instead, what I found was no research, none, not one study that had been conducted and published in the criminal justice or criminology literature that looked at the impact of de-escalation training on police. And I I thought, this can't be right. So we did a much larger look, and we did a systematic review across disciplines. And ultimately, what we found was 64 studies, the majority of those studies in the fields of nursing and psychiatry, uh, to look at the impact of de-escalation training, but none in policing. And I thought, you know, what if, what if these officers that have these concerns about de-escalation tactics, that it makes it to be a less safe situation, what if there's truth to that? We literally don't know. We anticipate that that's not the case because the concepts of time, distance, cover have been used by, for instance, SWAT teams and other specialized teams for years. And so we believe that de-escalation is going to have an impact. And I still believe that to be true, but it has not been studied. So we went with what we knew, with uh, what I call best practice, but I want to build the evidence base and not just rely on anecdotal information. And so we tested it uh, with the UCPD. We surveyed officers before the training, we surveyed them after the training, and then we surveyed them again in a four to six month follow-up period to see and better understand what their attitudes were, changes in knowledge, changing changes in confidence in uh, using these skills, the de-escalation skills. Uh, we wrote a report about it, but we couldn't, we couldn't determine changes in behavior. That was actually a good thing. It's because we had so few uses of force that we couldn't determine whether or not the training impacted the uses of force. So I needed a larger agency to look at. So we're actually uh, just finishing up uh, de-escalation, a systematic uh, uh, look. Uh, We're using a randomized control trial design with the Louisville Metro Police Department. And that study uh, was underway 
we started in February of 2019. And and, and just to clarify, so uh, assuming that the unit of analysis is individual officers, are you saying that individual officers are randomly assigned to either go through this de-escalation training or or not, or some sort of uh, comparison training? Unpack uh, what the, the nature of this randomized control or randomized trial. Sure. It's actually a step wedge design. So we randomized by precinct. Okay. Um, the reason that we did that is because randomized control trials in police departments are very hard to do at the individual level, simply due to staffing, scheduling. You know, we have to do research in the real world. Um, and also the contamination effect. Officers, um, officers talk to each other. Officers talk to each other, right. So we decided to do it at the precinct level. And so we did different steps in the wedge. Uh, and uh, also, the, that is the research methodology that we've done. Uh, I, I serve on a team that's looking at the impact of implicit bias training in the NYPD. So, we, so we've used this methodology before. Uh, but what it, what it means essentially is that, you know, we randomize which of those precincts went first for the de-escalation training that they were using. In the end, all officers are trained. Um, and it's just where we look in the, in the places along the, along the way where we use as controls versus treatment groups. Any findings yet? We do not have findings yet. We do have all of the surveys have been complete. So the pre, post, and follow-up surveys. Uh, we have received the behavioral data. We're looking at uses of force, for both frequency and severity of force. We're looking at arrests and citizen complaints. Uh, and we anticipate that we'll have findings by the end of the summer. So at UC, you referred to sanctity of life, and I've heard that also mentioned in other contexts. Uh, can you talk about what sanctity of life means as a principle uh, governing use of force? Um, well, there's lots of sort of different definitions uh, for it, or, you know, you can and look up and have specifics. Uh, but for me personally, what it means is that everyone goes home safe. Yeah. That's, I'm, I'm, you know, and so when you think about policing and even the policing shows from back when we were kids, um, or maybe just me as a kid, because uh, I, I think I'm a little older than some of the folks who might be listening. Um, but you'd have, uh, you know, the, that call to the police officers at the end of, you know, to make sure that they come back safe. Well, everyone needs to come back safe from a police citizen encounter. And that's the whole idea is that the sanctity of life is seeing and understanding the humanity in people and responding to that, whether or not they've committed a crime, whether or not uh, anything, any behavior that's happened, still, that is a human being that you are dealing with. And so you have a responsibility as a law enforcement officer to do everything that you can to preserve human life. Well, for me, I find that hard to argue with. Um, I would hope that all officers uh, would endorse that. Um, but I'll say, even though I um, uh, am not going to ask you to evaluate uh, what happened with uh, George Floyd, I will, I will offer my own evaluation. And, and for me, Well, I'll put this in general terms. For me, and, and I'll admit I am not a police officer. I've never been a police officer. It is a difficult and dangerous job. Um, and so take my opinion with a grain of salt. But I would think as a citizen that once uh, a community member is in handcuffs, uh, the threat level that officers perceive should diminish substantially. And in a case such as that with Floyd, I would hope that under the principle of sanctity of life, uh, a kind of motivation to provide care would actually be activated rather than a motivation, as I, as I saw it, at least on the part of Chauvin, a motivation to dominate. Uh, that is, a motivation to care uh, would be activated. Not so much about the Floyd case, but in general, what's your reaction to that statement of principle that once 
uh, a threat has been diminished, say, because the community member is in handcuffs, um, an officer, um, if there is any sign of distress on the part of that individual, uh, should not only have a motivation to try to control the situation, as it were, but also to try to provide or at least seek uh, care for that person. Yeah, I'll go one step further. I think it needs to be more than motivation. Um, We included it as part of our policy. It's required that you provide aid to individuals in need once, you know, and in the case of, uh, of an arrest situation, um, once that person is no longer an active threat uh, to the officer or to others on the scene, then they have a duty and a responsibility to administer aid uh, and also a duty to intervene uh, if other officers are not providing that type of aid. So those are things that we've included in our use of force policy. It's an expectation of our officers. Um, now, I, I, you know, I keep saying our, our officers, um, just to be clear, the University of Cincinnati Police Division, um, I've stepped down from the vice president's position and have, have moved back as a, as a professor in the School of Criminal Justice. But I, I feel a connection to not just that police agency, but many of the agencies that I deal with uh, and work with on a regular basis. And I, I believe that there are very, very good men and women uh, in the law enforcement profession that understand that and believe it and are not just required through policy, but are motivated to, uh, to act and to intervene. Um, and it's unfortunate that not all of the law enforcement officers uh, have that motivation, but I do believe that the vast majority do. And so for those that don't have the motivation, we need to put it in policy and require it. And to be clear, with the the motivation to intervene that's a part of UC policy, as I heard you, you presented it as a motivation to intervene when when another officer is not providing the requisite uh, aid. Is it also a motivation to intervene when another officer is not only not providing requisite aid, but is actually, uh, in the judgment of another officer, employing excessive force? Yes, and I'm sorry, I should have been clear. When I talk no. about the duty to intervene, I am talking specifically about the duty to intervene when there are uh, concerns regarding excessive force. Um, and the, uh, you know, kind of separate and aside from that is the duty to provide aid. Uh, so, yes, both. Going back to that uh, de escalation paper. You mentioned that um, many of those uh, studies, uh, perhaps most of those studies uh, that have examined uh, the efficacy of de-escalation have been in non-police contexts, uh, such as nursing, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, recognizing that there may be limits on the validity of generalization from that context to policing, what did the data seem to suggest about the efficacy of de-escalation in those non-police contexts? Well, first of those 64 studies, um, the methods uh, within those studies were pretty limited, um, unfortunately. Most of the studies looked at changes in attitudes and reported knowledge. Very few studies actually looked at changes in behavior. Um, When they did look at behavior, it was self-reported behavior rather than actual behavior. So, um, and the research designs themselves were problematic. Um, Most of them did not have randomized control trial designs and other things that we would come to expect for rigorous research. Uh, Generally, they did find uh, overall positive findings uh, towards uh, the use of de-escalation skills. But again, with that caveat of very limited designs. Um, And the other thing is, wide range in the content of the training, in the dosage of the training, in the delivery method of the training, right? There was just wide consistency, or I'm sorry, inconsistency uh, across um, these fields. And as you would expect, you'll see the same thing in policing uh, with what is de-escalation training? What does that mean? For some, it's a two-hour add-on as part of your in-service training. For others, it's a week-long course. Um, how, how is that training delivered? How often is it delivered? Is it reinforced in the field 
through supervisors? Is it recorded uh, when you use de-escalation techniques um, and, and then looked at systematically? All of those things really matter. Is it included in policy as a requirement for the use of force? All of that matters. And there's wide variation. One of the reasons that I'm really excited about the analyses that you'll hopefully have run by the end of this summer on those uh, precincts uh, in Louisville is, well, my excitement is is in part uh, sparked by having seen a recent social media post by uh, one of the local police departments uh, where I live and work where they posted photos of officers in the classroom and noted that their officers had recently gone through de-escalation training. And my first thought was, what does that mean? Um, and I didn't really have the, um, I hadn't thought about the issues enough to even know what specific dimensions the training might vary along that it would be worth say calling the chief and asking. Um, or if I were an activist, it, it, I, I wouldn't necessarily know exactly what question should I be asking a department in order to hold them to account to ensure that they're not simply going through some form of de-escalation training so they can check off a box and say we've done it, but they're actually going through a form of de-escalation training likely to have positive impact. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that your work um, and, and work to follow, I don't, I don't want to put it all on that one study, but I hope that more researchers will answer your call to do that work so that over time, uh, departments and community members holding them to account have a sense not only of whether de-escalation works or not, which is ultimately a sort of simplistic question, I shouldn't have put it that way, but rather they have a sense of which kinds of de-escalation training might have the most uh, beneficial impact. So I'm really excited about that work. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I found, um, you know, when I, when I stepped into the vice president position and I'm taking over this police department, you know, I went through all of the different sort of best practices for reform. Yep. And I looked at each one of those pieces and then pulled up the research to see what supported so that I know the details so that I could get it right. And what I found time after time with every single type of police reform there were no details. Yeah. There was no study that said this is the type of citizen engagement that works the best. That this, the implicit bias training, you know, we've been calling for implicit bias training. There's been no systematic study in policing of whether or not systematic or uh, in the implicit bias training has any impact on changes in officers' attitudes or behavior. So we're doing that study now. We're doing it with the NYPD. Um, you know, a lot of a lot of what I learned by literally being in the field and being in charge and putting together a plan for police reform was all the things that we didn't know. And then I felt I felt um, I just I guess I felt a, a some type of connection to these law enforcement leaders across the country that are exactly in that same place. So these are police executives that are saying we want to do better and we want to improve and we want to change police behavior. Help us, tell us, what does the research show? And the researchers, where are you? What are you doing? Let's engage. We need to be working much harder and faster to be able to get information to these police chiefs more in real time. We can't, we can't wait. Um, these issues are too important. And so I call on my fellow researchers. I've been calling them out all over the country. Step up. Work with your local police agency and let's get going. You've been involved in a study of open-air drug markets in Seattle, or am I wrong about that? No, that's right. But that was a long time ago. Well, I, I noticed it on your CV, mm -hmm. and, and it caught my eye because I remembered uh, reading Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow, and in her book, she uh, cited data uh, from studies of open-air drug markets in Seattle. I don't mm -hmm. have handy the names uh, of, of those authors, but uh, the 
bottom line of the results, as I recall, seemed to be that within open air drug markets, even when um, both black and uh, white uh, dealers and uh, buyers were visible in the market, African-Americans were more likely to be arrested uh, than whites, uh, from which uh, Alexander and apparently the authors concluded that this suggested racial bias on the part of police and enforcement. And so when I went back to the footnotes, I expected to see Ingle at all, but that wasn't Ingle at all. You you did, I think, later work. And um, can you talk about what you found? So Catherine Beckett and her colleagues. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That, thank you. That was, yes. Um, and, and those studies, uh, I think, were critical, so important in our field, um, and to really take a hard, close look at racial and ethnic disparities in arrest decision making um, in the in the city of Seattle. So uh, when those when those reports first came out, um, the city leadership took that information very seriously. Um, they were concerned. Uh, they wanted to take a look at it. Um, with more recent data and to have an independent, uh, an independent look. And so they hired uh, myself and a couple of my colleagues uh, to, to do that look. And we used slightly different methods uh, and different measures, and we did have different conclusions. Uh, and what we found when we looked at the crime rate, uh, we did find a correlation uh, between the crime rate um, and the arrests. Uh, Catherine Beckett did not. Um, but we also used different benchmarks, uh, different comparison models. Uh, and we also took a look at um, calls for service. Yep. And this was a really interesting piece. So our hypothesis was, um, well, that there's, Clearly, there's a racial disparity in arrest rates. Yep. What causes that? And I've always been so interested in this because if the cause is individual police bias, then the solution is going to be very different than if the cause is something else. Yep. And so my concern with some of the research is that we jump to the cause as individual officer bias. And so then when we try to find solutions and plug those in, behavior doesn't change. And then we all wonder why. So my, my thought here was, well, let's take a look at all the different things that could possibly explain this disparity in the drug arrest rates in Seattle. And one of those is calls for service, with the idea being that the police are going to be more likely to deploy to places where they're called. Uh, and not just in the case of, of drug arrests, you know, because a lot of times they'll be called somewhere, they get there, people have scattered, there's no arrest to be made. However, those types of feedback to police commanders when they're moving into a data-driven model, how many calls for service are we getting for drug activity in this area? Okay, we need to put our police resources there to deal with these open-air open drug markets. If that were the reason for the disparity in the arrest rates, then training officers in individual bias is not going to impact and reduce those racial disparities. And that's exactly what we found, in fact, that calls for citizen calls for service were strongly correlated with police drug arrests. Now, could the citizens be biased? Could the calls for service still be biased? You, anticipate, yes. you anticipated my next question. Absolutely. Of course they can. I think we've seen this, right, with a, quite a few anecdotal examples of, of white individuals calling the police right. on routine, normal activity of black individuals. Right? So could those calls be biased? Yes. But if we're asking the police department to re to respond to citizen complaints and concerns. And those citizen complaints and concerns have bias. What is it that we want our police department to do? That's a much harder question to unpack, right? Than rather just say, well, the cops are biased. Sometimes I think saying the cops are biased is the, I don't want to say easy solution. That's not what I mean. None of this is easy, but 
it's much more complicated, I think, than people actually realize. And if, if the real goal is to reduce racial and ethnic disparities in police outcomes and to make a more equitable society, we need to look well beyond individual police bias. So just to make sure that I'm hearing it clearly, it, it, it doesn't sound as if you are denying that there may be contexts in which individual level bias on the part of officers is a cause, perhaps even the primary cause, but it sounds as if you're saying that it's a mistake to assume that that is the cause and base our interventions on that assumption without investigating uh, that as well as other possible causes. Is, is that a fair paraphrase? That's exactly it. And and I came to that um, conclusion pretty early on when I was a young researcher and I was researching uh, racial profiling. Yes. So this is way back when the Maryland State Police and the New Jersey State Police uh, had been sued uh, for racial profiling up and down the I-95 corridor. And the, that's when we started using that term driving while black and racial yeah. profiling concerns. And so I worked uh, with a lot of agencies to collect data on traffic stops and start to better understand through data what, you know, what that looks like. Um, and that's when I realized this is really much more complicated because if we think that training officers in the time it was it wasn't implicit bias training is just what we use now right before it was uh you know racial profiling training right so it was anti-racial profiling training we did that um racial sensitivity training we've done that in the past all of when if we think that these trainings that are designed to individually change bias uh at the officer level We've done it over and over again, and we still have racial and ethnic disparities in traffic stops. We've been doing this for 20 plus years, and we still have racial and ethnic disparities. Something else is going on. So we need to problem solve around that and then pick the right solutions uh, to reduce that problem. Another outcome where there have been disparities and social scientists have tried to understand what drives them is in police uh, use of force, and in particular, uh, deaths um, uh, at the hands of, uh, of police. And I know within my own field of social psychology, uh, there are many who believe that uh, bias, perhaps including implicit bias, uh, contributes to uh, racial disparities and use of force. Uh, but I know that there are others. Um, uh, Joe Cesario is one uh, who have raised questions about the extent to which uh, there's clear evidence, at least in lethal use of force, uh, 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 racial bias. I wonder if within criminal justice, you have a sense of what the state of the knowledge is there regarding uh, racial bias uh, in either lethal or non-lethal use of force? Is there is there clear evidence uh, that it exists or not? Well, we're a social science, so there's never clear evidence about anything. <laughs> <laughs> but there have been a number of use of force studies. Um, you know, our first problem is, is that our use of force data is not very good. Yeah. Uh, not systematic. Uh, it varies across agencies. Uh, our access to the, to these data uh, is is hit or miss. Um, so there's a lot of problems with the with the quality and quantity of the data to begin with. Um, but of the studies that have been done, generally what we're finding is that legal factors are the strongest predictors of whether or not force is used. Um, and so, and by legal factors, you know, one of those primarily is resistance shown to officers. And so, you know, some people talk about the use of force as response to resistance rather than use of force as a title, right? That it's response to resistance. Um, better understanding the impact of that. Uh, we need to 
we need more research in this area. Are there racial and ethnic disparities? Yes. Does that mean it's discrimination or bias? Unknown. And I say unknown because there are all of these alternative explanations that we haven't studied. And again, with the idea being, you know, I'm not trying to deny, I, I, I'm, that is not my intent. My intent is to solve the problem. And in order to do that, we need more information so that our solutions match uh, what, you know, what we're trying to accomplish here. So could I, could I jump in and ask a follow-up question? Sure. Years ago, I was in a discussion of uh, um, actually some of uh, Roland Fryer's uh, data on use of force where at least at the level of lethal force, he was not finding um, um, any evidence that uh, there was a greater likelihood for an officer to fire their weapon upon a black than a white suspect given an encounter. But the key was his data were conditioned on there being an encounter. That is, given an encounter, there was no evidence of racial bias. And one of the points that came out in our discussion was that could be true, and you could still see more African Americans being shot by police, armed or unarmed, um, if, say, police are deployed in ways that increase the likelihood of encounters, given that you're black, then you're white. Uh, would that be an example of a, a kind of other explanation that doesn't deny that there are racial disparities, but also does not assume that the driver is individual level bias uh, at the moment of decision? That's right. That's exactly, that's a, that's a great example. And in fact, when we analyze use of force data, we actually do it as a subset of arrests yeah. because it, you know, Arrest is the situation that would likely lead, you know, then after that um, or during uh, is the use of force situation. So if you look at just use of force data, what are you comparing it to, right? What's the benchmark? Where, you know, those are, those are it's problematic analysis. Sometimes what we do instead is we look at all arrests and then we try to predict which of those arrests lead have use of force situations within them. Yeah. There's something within that arrest encounter that is predicting use of force. And that's when we look at things like race and gender and resistance level shown and other things. That's where we're trying to tease out and better understand what is it about this arrest that resulted in no use of force compared to the ones that do and then better understand what those patterns are. Uh, there's a lot more work to be done in this area. And, you know, with body cams now, we should be treating that body cam footage as a new data source. We should be systematically coding these interactions and creating databases to look at uh, to better understand that interaction between, a, between an officer and a suspect and better understand what predicts the likelihood of use of force and also officer injuries and citizen injuries, right? All with the idea of we want to make these encounters safer. How do we do that? And do you think that we need more data on deployment, uh, uh, police deployment patterns? Sure, absolutely. And, and you know, we, of course, um, the deployment data, uh, you know, is there, but it's in most police agencies, it's in a difficult format to really better to, to utilize a, in a systematic way. Um, but even so, that deployment piece, we need to better understand, likely that deployment piece is linked to citizen complaints and, and, and uh, calls for service, and also to crime rates. Is that in and of itself, is that, is that problematic? What do we want our police to do? Do we want them to ignore this information and patrol evenly? Or do we want them to focus in particular neighborhoods that are experiencing higher levels of violence, for instance? And if we do want them to focus and deploy there in greater numbers, what does that mean for the residents that live there? Well, it all depends on the tactics and the practices that those officers are using once they're there, right? There's a whole host of things that we need to better understand 
And then our communities need to be working directly with our police departments so that they can express how they'd like to be policed and so that the police can have the conversation of, okay, but here's what your violence looks like in this neighborhood and this is why we're doing this and come to conclusions and, and um, compromise over what policing looks like in their communities. If you had the ear of a local activist who is committed to police doing their work with only the required use of force, this activist is committed to uh, unbiased policing, this activist is, activist is committed to community safety, if you, had if you had a moment to give them advice, would you give them have any advice to them on what specific steps they should take uh, in engaging with uh, the police or other uh, government agencies. Yeah, absolutely, because um, I actually do have the ear of those type of folks um, because I work with them directly. And that's what I would say. I would say, come to the table. Come to the table. You know, <laughs> we had so many protests um, after our officer-involved shooting, and there were some folks that would would be upset about the protests and, and it's difficult, right? You know, I've been a protester. I've been protested against, right? Um, you know, and, but those protesters have great power and great voice right now. They are forcing change. Take the next step, sit at the table and make sure it's change that makes sense for your community. And that is done collaboratively with your police department. Use the power of your voice right now to engage in a productive way and work together with police departments. That is what's going to change long-term uh, best for everyone in this country. So that's what I would recommend. And in fact, um, I, re I remember this so specifically. I was, uh, I was at a, an event I had just taken over as the vice president and I had a citizen who was pretty upset with me, knew me personally and was giving me a pretty hard time about taking on this job and why I would do this. And did I understand the pain in the community? And I said, stop yelling at me from across the table and get over here and work with us. And I hired him as the director of police community relations. And from then on, uh, we worked together and it was great. So roll up your sleeves and be ready to do the work with your local police departments. They want to change too. You'd be surprised at how many folks really do want uh, to move forward in productive ways in the law enforcement profession. So give them a chance. When you say that, you remind me that when I spoke uh, last week to uh, Lamar Stewart, who's actually a Philadelphia County uh, detective and um, former vice president of their chapter of the National Black Police Association, one of the ideas he had was for a kind of citizen board that would actually be a part of the interview process for police officers so that they would actually have to stand before a group of community members who would get to vote on whether to recommend that person uh, uh, to become an officer or not in their community. Do you know of any departments that actually do anything like that? Well, we started doing that with the University of Cincinnati Police Division. Um, we have a community advisory council called the CAC. Um, after about three years, they changed the name to um, Compliance Council, so CCC. But regardless, uh, we put together some of our uh, stakeholders in the community. It was a diverse group, but we also brought some of our biggest critics to the table, and we said, let's build this together. And every decision that we made, we made um, in, in concert with our community members. Uh, we, and including hiring of the police uh, leadership and the new recruits um, and the training that we did and even the selection of who would do the top to bottom review. Uh, we had committees that we set up where those folks were right involved with me along the way. I, I jokingly said, okay, everyone, 
put your hand on the knife. I want all the fingerprints on the knife. <laughs> you know, and it was our little joke about, listen, we're all in this together. And everyone, everyone gets to have a say here. Uh, and, and we move forward together. And so do I think that's a great idea? Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I think that police officers do need to be held accountable by their own communities. But I also think these are, these police officers are part of their community, right? They are the community. Uh, and so we need especially, to... Especially when they live in it. That's right. That is exactly right. And Because they don't always. That's true. That's true. And sometimes, you know, you'll see folks that don't have lived experience of patrolling in particular types of neighborhoods, right? In high crime neighborhoods uh, or places where there are high poverty. Some of our young officers have never seen or experienced that before. And so we need to make sure that we're doing a very good job of bringing in the right people to the profession, training them well while they're there, supervising them well, and holding them accountable. And we can only do that in partnership with our communities. So I would encourage folks to step up to the plate and engage with the police departments so that we can have better policing. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Robin Ingle for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on Ingle or any of the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where there will be relevant links. To offer feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, if you are a Twitter user, you can mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or you can go to Apple Podcasts and post a rating and or a review or to offer more private feedback, you can send an email to tatter.rags.2017 at gmail.com. In any case, thank you for listening, wash your hands, and be well. <laughs>